Welcome to the Gem of All Mechanisms podcast, where we interview those in the know from academics and computer scientists to policymakers, philosophers and more about the effects of 21st century tech on us all. BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT, supports people who work in the industry and wants to make IT good for the whole of society by shaping policy, influencing change and raising educational standards. My name is Brian Rinsman. Today I'm speaking to uh, Catherine Miller, CEO of Dot Everyone. Thanks for speaking to us, Catherine. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, first of all, I think we'd just like to start with just tell us a little bit about Dot Everyone for, for the audience. So, Dot Everyone is the responsible technology think tank, and we are fighting for better tech for everyone. So, that means that we're a very active, busy sort of a think tank. We don't just talk, we act. Mm. Um, and we work both with people making products and services to show them how to make tech products that work in the best interests of, of people, communities and planet. And we also work with policymakers and decision makers to really set the terms for how technology is used so that it works in everyone's best interest. Okay, uh, so that fits right in, uh, which is why obviously we work with each other a little bit now, because BCS's mandate is making IT good for society in a nutshell. So I'd like to talk a little bit, first of all, about the terms we actually use when we discuss this stuff. And this comes up in all sorts of contexts in IT, actually. So today we've talked about perhaps the terms inclusivity, corporate social responsibility, diversity. Are the terms unhelpful in themselves? What should we be talking about in these, in these conversations? So when we started as an organisation, we made a choice to talk about responsible technology. And that's because we see this very holistically. We don't want um, particular issues to be put into silos. So there's not a woman problem or a diversity problem or an ethics problem or a sustainability problem. There are those problems, but fundamentally... We're talking about the overall responsibility for how technology Mm. shapes the world we live in. And we feel very much that this is a responsibility that everyone at every part of the process has a role to play in. So that means from a tech point of view, everyone from the product teams to the sales teams to the CEO, but also across all parts of the policy landscape. And also for us as members of the public, what can we do to shape the directions of technology? So obviously a CEO or a CIO can have a bigger influence than a, than a coder. Uh, but just to quote an interesting, I found this fascinating, Grady Booch, who uh, is an IBM engineer, invented unified modelling language, said in a tweet a few months ago, every line of code represents an ethical decision. What, what do you think about that? I mean, that's quite, that's quite small, isn't it? That's absolutely the case, and I would completely subscribe to that. And I think almost one of the problems that we're facing at the moment is that while it's really encouraging that the the conversation around ethics has really grown and amplified and diversified, a lot of it is getting stuck in kind of nicely worded ethics statements Mm. on company websites Mm. um, or very, very long papers with sort of complicated philosophical language in them. And that doesn't help the person who's writing a line of code work out where the trade-off, where where the tipping point is in the choices that they make. Because you're right, every single product decision 
is an ethical decision. And what we're really looking at is how do you take the work that people are doing to think about ethics, to think about principles at a high level, mm. and really embed them into people's organisations, embed them into people's working lives, so that they have a mental model. What does that mean? If my yeah. company says it's an ethical company, and I'm the person who's building a new feature onto an app, what does that mean for me? And, yeah. that, and that's where the real change will happen, is when people can really grasp the implications of that. I mean, they, there's a lot of talk about unforeseen consequences, aren't there? Um, the problem with unforeseen consequences is that they are unforeseeable. So I wonder if people find it easier to think in terms of examples. It seems to me there might be a gap in, in, in the research market for actually saying, well, here's an example of a line of code that was used 15 years ago, say, I'm, I'm simplifying, and here's the knock-on effect it had later. People like to think in those terms. Is, is there something we can do about that sort of approach, do you think? So you're right, you can't, uh, you know, the old question of the unknown unknowns is, mm. is one that you can't grapple with. So what we talk about is unintended consequences. So the work that we do with organisations is we start from that point of what are your values as an organisation, what do you stand for, and then turn that into product principles. What do you want your product to do in the world? How ought it to behave in right. the world? So that might be, for example, if your values are that you are an open service that should everyone should be able to use, one of your product principles might be that accessibility is baked into every part right. of, of your technology. Rather than latched on at the end. Rather than latched on at the end. But that then starts to give people guardrails for how they're going to build their products. Mm. We then work through with organisations and with teams to say, okay, so we now know how you intend your product to work in the world. So let's talk through what are the intended consequences, not just on the direct users of the product, but on the people that they associate with. Or what are the intended consequences if that product scales and is suddenly used across an entire society? What might the environmental consequences mm. be of the product that you're, that you're creating? Let's through, think, think through what you want it to do, for both for good and bad, and then start to play through those questions and what the unintended consequences might be. And then in the same way that people are used to operating in an agile environment, you think about what are the things that you can then act on, what are the things you can influence, what can you monitor. So you're looking at really upstream, all, and then continuously through the process, how can you ensure that you're keeping across the, the, the ways that your product might affect the society that we live in. So how, how can we balance that with, with the idea of innovation? Because, you know, you read these stats, don't you? Running one AI model takes, I don't know, the amount of power that five cars take in a lifetime or something, or, or blockchain in itself causes, by its very nature, a huge draw on resources. When we innovate, we, we're starting from, from ground zero, and we're just having a big idea. So where does the ethical consideration come in there? When, when should you start thinking about it? Obviously, we would love it if everyone thought about it right up front. Mm. But if we took that position, then there's an awful lot of technology out there in the world that, that we would say we've given up on. So in terms of when do you start being ethical, the, there's a nice phrase about when was the best time to plant a tree. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Right. But <laughs> if you didn't plant the tree 20 years ago, you might as well do it now. Yeah. Right? So I think we're in the same position with ethics. There's a lot of things that, gosh, we wish we'd done things differently 20 years ago mm. and the world might be a better place. Um, my son recently came up with the idea of a job called an uninventor. 
um, in opposition to an inventor. And I love this idea because I think the world would benefit so much from an uninventor who went away uninventing the bad things that, that uh, That's happened. good. I like that. <laughs> but unfortunately, uninventors don't yet exist. Um, and so the question is, what, what do we do now? What trees can we plant today mm-hmm. that perhaps we should have planted 20 years ago, but it's still worth doing? And so and the way that we're thinking about things is, is we're a very pragmatic organisation and we kind of meet the world as it is now. Right. So we're looking at what can we do with the world of technology that we know now, knowing actually that there's a huge appetite to behave responsibly. Mm. That's what our research is finding. You know, three quarters of the tech workers that we spoke to last year said they wanted practical ways to innovate responsibly. Yeah. And so let's give them that mm. and see what we can achieve just from starting now. Just thinking about some specifics from recent times, and obviously online harm has come way up the agenda in the last two or three years. Social media regulation is something that gets discussed. What sort of good practice is that already? that might help us just get a bit of a handle on that sort of thing. Is there stuff out there already? Or, or actually, are we doing what you're saying now and just planting the seed now and retroactively trying to get a handle on it? So I think social media is the, is the area that has sort of captured the public's mm. attention um, and the media's attention most strongly and understandably so. And I think what we're seeing at the moment is a recognition from the big social media platforms that something has got to change. Um, and also a big push on, on regulation from the government. Mm. So the online harms bill is coming down the line this year, which is going to set up a new regulator that will oversee the social media landscape. Yeah. I think what we're seeing um, at the moment, and what I find, I guess, disappointing in terms of the platform's response, is it's a kind of whack-a-mole approach. <laughs> is when an issue becomes such a hot topic then a platform will come and try and whack it on the head. So um, you saw this with with the very tragic case of Molly Russell and Instagram coming out saying, we're going to remove all pro-suicide content from our platform. Mm. It's understandable that they responded that way, but it's actually unhelpful because it's an unrealistic expectation. It's a promise that no one can fulfil. And it's not a systemic change because they may respond in that way around pro-suicide content and then there will be another issue that comes up. So what we really need to start doing is thinking systemically about where do the issues, where do the underlying problems in this lie Mm. and how can we hope to tackle that. And I do think the proposal from the online harms bill around, or the forthcoming online harms bill around a duty of care is a very effective systemic approach if it's done well. Now, I think I already know what you're going to say to this because we've alluded to it already, but um, we have a lot of campaigns talking about the issues, don't we? So, for example, women in IT is a thing that, that we're interested in. The numbers, in real terms, have not moved for years, if not decades. Are we, in fact, just focusing on the problems all the time rather than actually providing proper solutions? I think there's, there's a question around... Providing solutions. I mean, we, as as you picked up, we're we're keen on acting mm. and not just talking. Mm. Um, but I think it's also a question of rather than focusing necessarily on a single issue like women in IT, important as that is, what is it that we're trying to get to? What do we want? What is the the goal that we're trying to achieve? Mm. And you know, from from my point of view, having women helping to shape the technology 
that everyone uses in their lives is very important so that women's needs are reflected in, in the technology that is built. Yeah. And that the tech, you know, technology shapes our society and therefore the people who make technology should represent the interests and the needs of every sector of society. So I think thinking about it from that point of view and not necessarily what's the quota, but the point is we want smart, thoughtful, caring people building technology that serves the needs of the people who are going to use it and the society that's going to be shaped by it. Yes. So can we do that? We had, um, every year we we undertake a little bit of research about um, diversity, inclusivity, uh, gender, ethnicity, uh, disability and age are the things that we particularly look at the main bits at the moment. We were discussing yesterday whether we look at the recruitment in a slightly wrong way. So a quite a common comment we get is you ought to employ the best person for the job in terms of qualifications and if that's a bloke, fine. I wonder if we should think about recruitment in terms of teams rather than individual people. Is that, is that a valid comment? That is valid because one of the things that tech companies are increasingly realising is technologies are not just technical. No. You know, these are societal products yeah. in a sense, and you need people who understand the tech bit and the society bit as part of those teams. Multidisciplinary teams are really vital to creating resilient products that will mm. work in the best interests of society. We did a piece of work um, last year around the use of technology in the social care sector. Right. And that was fascinating because what we found was the people who are making tech for social care are not people who have ever had any experience of being in the position of needing social care right. or caring for someone. In mm. fact, people with long-term health conditions and disabilities, as one of our participants said, every disabled person is an engineer. They're constantly having to innovate right. and be ingenious and clever to navigate a world that has not been designed for them. Mm. There's a massive pool of expertise amongst people who have had to work out how to get a wheelchair into an inaccessible building or how to reach something that they can't reach or how to see some, you know, get their, get their way around a situation where they can't see very well. Mm-hmm. The people who are building technology to serve these people need to listen because the expertise is there. Yes, that's interesting. It's a little bit like if, if all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a, a nail, isn't it? Um, so let's produce an app to, to solve this problem. Yes, there's, there's a horrible tendency for the belief that everything can be turned into an app. Yes. And I think particularly one of the things we look at from a .iPhone point of view is how do we serve the furthest first? So how do we meet the needs of the people who may be in the most vulnerable position? Mm. That is not only good for them, but it makes the best possible product. I definitely think it's good for everybody else as well. It's going to be good for everyone else, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. The digital world has endless possibilities and seemingly endless challenges. BCS is working to find truth and build trust by sharing experiences, debating what we know and discovering what we don't. Get involved in the BCS's Truth and Trust campaign and tell us what you think about the issues raised in this podcast at bcs.org slash truth. I just want to talk a little bit about IT professionals specifically. So this might be an unfair question, but in your view at the moment, do IT professionals in their day-to-day work consider the ethical implications of what they do enough? They do, and we know they do, because uh, we did this work last year with tech workers 
and we found that people are very, very good at spotting when bad stuff happens. Mm. That's the good story. Yes. The bad story is bad stuff is happening quite a lot. So over a quarter of the people we spoke to had seen a situation in their own work where a, a decision had been made about a product that they thought was going to be negative for people in society. Yes. So it's great that they can spot it. It's bad that it's happening. The really bad and the really sad part from my point of view is that quite often people are seeing ethical problems and they have nowhere to go with them. So of those people right. who've seen bad stuff happen, one in five of them quit their job. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a good and a bad story. It's a great story because it shows the ethical backbone of the people working in the industry. They care enough that Fair they will walk. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. that, that is an incredibly inspiring story. Mm. What is tragic about that is organisations don't need to let them walk. Organisations could provide the practical resources, the whistleblowing, the mechanisms for people to raise their concerns, keep the great talent that they've got, and build better products as a result. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, in our last two years' worth of our, of our general member survey, have asked people if they want to, to anonymously tell us any ethical dilemmas they've come across, which quite a lot of them have been happy to do. And quite an interesting breadth of feedback we've had from governmental level things to yeah, lines of code almost. So what should we be doing more, do you think, to support the, the concept of whistleblowing and the individuals that sometimes feel they need to move on? Ideally, you don't want to get to a position where you're at a whistleblower moment. Right. You know, that if, if you're at that moment that things have gone a long way, far too long. Mm. This is why we believe that building moments into the process where you stop and you consider the intended and the unintended consequences you give everyone in the team a chance to surface those issues up front is a way to start to mitigate that before it's happened but we do agree um, there should be a safe place for whistleblowers Mm. to raise concerns if it does get that far Um, we we think that organizations like yours would be very helpful in supporting that but we also think there is training available, there are resources available that organisations could just start to use immediately to help with this. And maybe another way that you as an organisation um, can support this is by surfacing that best practice, by showing yeah. what's available, because this is an urgent need. You do not want to get to a situation where in the tech industry, this number of people are quitting their jobs over ethical concerns. It's not good for the workers and it's definitely not good for the industry. Absolutely. And, and that's going to be reflected in the public's view of, of their trust, isn't it? Which is part of the research that you're doing right now. So that would be interesting to look at. The last question I had really was about that sort of thing. Um, how can we enable people to, to get the support? And that, as you quite rightly identify, it needs to come from... Obviously, we're, we're an apolitical organisation, I think the same as you are, so um, there needs to be a certain amount of collaborative work going on there, doesn't there, to give people the strength to say, I'm not doing that, to their boss, possibly, um, without perhaps fear of reprisals, or if there are reprisals, that they get some sort of support in the back in the background. Yeah, and I think um, it's interesting to watch what is happening in the United States, mm. the tech workers' movements that have sprung up there, that you've seen uh, the Google walkout over yeah. sexual harassment in the workplace, but also refusals to work on defence contracts, on, on working uh, with the Chinese, with working on immigration contracts that people felt were ethically problematic, 
also amongst Amazon workers, the push for a more sustainable climate policy. Yeah. And that both is having positive results and in terms of stopping some potentially problematic work happening, changing Amazon's approach to, to the climate emergency. But we're also seeing some very worrying reprisals against some of the, particularly Google workers who have spoken yeah. out. For all that I commend the people who are speaking out and who are trying to drive change, a lot of people are not in the position to do that and they should not be made vulnerable by standing up for the principles that they adhere to. And there's, there's other societal principles that are, that are exacerbated by IT approaches, aren't there? For example, the fact that work in such a way in the gig economy that they lose a lot of the rights that for many years have been slowly built up. So whilst there are some people in the tech industry able to speak out, there are others that are exacerbating the situation because they almost have no choice but to do a certain kind of work. Are government actually taking that seriously enough? I think the policy landscape has been very slow to recognise the way that people's working lives have changed mm. fundamentally. We did a piece of work that we published earlier this year with gig economy workers who were really at the very low, vulnerable end of the gig economy scale. So probably yeah. not IT professionals working right. freelance, but more like your delivery Delivering riders food and on, yes. cleaners yeah. and, and maintenance and so on. And I, I think one of the immediate challenges that, that presents itself is how do we um, recognise that fundamentally ways of working have changed and create new ways to enact old rights, if you see what I mean? So how do we still recognise the rights that people have in the workplace and those rights are fundamental and they should um, continue, but we do not live in a society where people have one job for life where there is going to be a union that, that backs them, mm. but there are even going to be any kind of HR and employment procedures from, from the companies that they work with. So how can we build new structures that, cre that create the same protections that people have had previously? And do you think the, the, the very tenets behind capitalism actually make this difficult? So organisations like ours that are driving change tend to do some work around what we call a theory of change. Right. So th this is how we're going to go about and achieve our mission. Um, and when you do, when you have these kind of conversations, one of the questions you ask yourselves are, you know, what are the, the factors that will inhibit you? And we, we had a question about, is responsible technology possible mm. in a capitalist society? and certainly in a data capitalist society. Yeah. And I think that is a real challenge, but I suppose back to my original point around our pragmatism is we think there's a lot more to be gained by acting in the world as it is now right. than sitting waiting for, <laughs> some for the revolution, for, for the revolution <laughs> to come. Yeah. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that the revolution might not be very important and I'm very glad that there are people out there who are also focused mm -hmm. on driving that really fundamental transformational change in the ways that our societies are underpinned. Mm. We already do quite a lot as yes. an organisation yeah, yeah. and so I think you know the value that we can really add is to listen to the people who are at the vanguard who are really trying to change the entire system root and branch mm. and translate that into practical action that people can start doing now so that everyone 
can embed responsibility into the way that they shape the technology that we live with. You seem to have a very interesting balance of, of, of a holistic view and a, and a pragmatic approach. Uh, so that's been really interesting to talk to you about that. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question, which is, and um, this is my light-hearted question, right? <laughs> so um, in the past, we've heard the likes of Elon Musk and, and even Stephen Hawking saying that AI is going to take over the world and possibly destroy it. Um, we've got the lights of um, Ray Kurzweil saying, actually, in a few years, we'll just all upload our minds uh, to you know, massive server farms and live happily ever after. Uh, which one do you think is coming first? I'm afraid I'm going to say neither. You know, there, there's always that thing where you come back from some workshop about some phenomenally cutting-edge emerging technology with the story of how no one could quite get the projector to work and then... Uh, <laughs> You know, someone was saying, let's switch it off and switch it on again. <laughs> yeah. So, I, mean, I think, to, to your light for to comment, um, you know, that there's also a nice catchphrase that people like to use, which is, the future is here, it's just unevenly distributed. Right. I, I think what we're, we're in this very strange moment at the moment of technological adaptation, mm. where the pace of technology is fast, but it's really patchy. And it's affecting different people in very different ways at different parts, you know, in, in different parts of the world and in different parts of people's lives. Mm. And one of the challenges for us as a society is how do we serve everyone? How do we serve the people who have implanted chips into themselves and want to upload themselves to a server? And how do we serve the lady who still would like to go down to the post office and collect her pension from the person that she's met for the past 20 years yeah and that's the society that that's yeah. the breadth of the society that we're living in and so what we need to make sure is that is to that point of the furthest first we're really yeah. serving the needs of everyone in there well that, that's been really interesting uh, Catherine thanks ever so much for, for talking to us and we look forward to hearing from you in June as well I'm looking forward to it too it's been a real pleasure thank you thanks. You have been listening to BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT's Gem of All Mechanisms podcast. For much more content, please visit bcs.org or follow us on social media.